please open your copies of God's Word at two Psalm number eleven, please. Psalm number eleven. A short psalm of seven verses, and we'll sing it we'll read them together as a whole. Psalm eleven to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Amen. Amen. So once again, when we consider what we've just read and we sung also, we see that the theme of this psalm is the truthful situation that God's people individually as a whole, that they suffer trials, they suffer persecution in life, that they are frequently the victims of great evil and hatred. But once again, again, so this theme is not unique, it's not the first time we come across it, but once again, it's coupled with the solemn fact and truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? although there be people against us. And yet if God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord in heaven, he knows the troubles of his own beloved ones. And even now he delivers them and he will soon completely vindicate them as he righteously judges the godless and he pours his wrath upon them forever and he will ever be the very source of comfort for his own people. So this is no new theme, as we've already noted in previous psalms, and that theme will come again and again through the psalms, as you know the psalms. Some some psalms it's more expressly spoken of, in others it's it's a passing truth. Why? Why do we have these psalms and these multiple psalms that keep on reminding us of our of? either a a truth that we've experienced ourselves or at least we understand from the Scriptures. Why why does the Lord uh, continue to remind us of these two things? That life for the believer will not be easy on this side of glory, that there are many enemies, but God is with you. Those two sides of that one coin. And it seems to me that the logical answer is that we need to be reminded again and again and again. Why do we need to be reminded again and again? Well, consider this, when a problem occurs, when something great and difficult occurs, 
what happens? There's a, there's a, a fine that comes in through the post or in the mail or and suddenly that you, your demander to pay within 28 days something you couldn't even pay if you had three years to save up for. Or whatever the circumstance might be, there's a, there's a relationship at work that went, went south very quickly. It's because we become consumed by the problem, we become consumed by the, by the urgency, by the, the, the panic we feel, by the fear, by the circumstance. We're, gra we're grasped by the circumstance and become consumed in looking at it as opposed to looking to the one help and deliverer uh, from those circumstances, even through those circumstances. Of course, our initial reaction is to, Lord, take it away. And the Lord often says, no, I'll take your hand. I won't take it away. And then he carries us through that difficulty. So we become constantly consumed by a problem and a difficulty and we take our eyes off the Lord and we look at the circumstance. And then the circumstance has more power over us than it should do and we do not cast our cares upon the Lord. And if we do, we keep looking at the circumstance. But the Lord says, no, look at me and we're, we're going back down again. And, and so the Lord must repeat this simple truth. Stop looking at the problem and look at your Redeemer not to say that you're to deny the problem or ignore it. You must deal with it with the, with the wisdom and the help that the Lord gives, but look unto Jesus. So we look unto the Redeemer, we cast our cares upon Him, and we patiently await His deliverance. And so with the Lord's gracious help, let us uh, consider, and I entitled this, The People of Christ Vindicated. The People of Christ Vindicated. In two main points then, as we look at Psalm 11, we see in verses 1 to 3, we see King David's tests and trials to begin with. King David's tests and trials. And as we see that, we see in verse 1 the despair. The despair uh, that he makes very clear to us. And we see that there. And it's... At first reading, you might think this is a this is a this is a, a, a wonderful confession of faith in some ways it is a confession of faith in the Lord put I my trust but if you read on you'll see actually it's a reaction it's a reaction to something that's happening he then goes on to describe so in the Lord put I my trust how say ye to my soul it, it's a response to what they're saying they're saying to his soul they're saying flee as a bird to your mountain and then we understand as we're looking into this that they're saying to my soul, how say ye to my soul? Which is a very strong expression. And it seems to be what they are saying to him when they're saying flee, go away. Telling him to flee, move away. They're not, they're not advising him to do something that's good for him. They're saying, uh, they're saying something to him that has hurt him, that's penetrated his soul, that there is an a hurtful uh, word to him that he should go. Where should he flee from? Uh, flee from the throne, from the anointing, from the kingdom that God has put into his hand. Flee. We might see Absalom uh, behind this. We may, see, uh, we may see Saul, but of course that would be before David's kingship. But they're saying flee away. Flee as a bird to your mountain. 
and uh, what is interesting is if we're very careful about reading this is that David says in the Lord put I my trust I put my trust in the Lord and then as he answers them how say ye says plural of people who were saying it so many more people are saying it to him but not just to him because it says flee ye that's not written down there but it is when we read your mountain that's plural so flee as a bird ye flee as a bird to your mountain so it's not just David on his own being cast away and this may indeed bring us to that context of Absalom of that David and his uh, his his faithful servants and and men they are fleeing away and they are to flee they are to flee to which mountain what particular mountain it may just mean historically just the wilderness and Judea get get into the mountains and get away from civilization get away from your throne from your palace from the temple from the means of grace flee or it could mean as the word maybe in the context of, of mountain here when we consider uh, the holy temple and then the mount of God uh, further down the Lord's throne is in his heaven in verse 4 might it be saying that you're to flee to Mount Zion is it an expression uh, that he should die go to your mountain go to your Zion that we don't, we don't want to sort of be digging too much and sieving too much and, and coming to the wrong conclusion but these are words and expressions that it might mean to because it, it, it was a painful truth that he heard flee as a bird to your mountain what does that mean to him it 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 it, it it's it's stabbed deep into his soul and therefore his reaction is in the lord i put my i'm putting my trust in the lord even though you say flee whatever else that means but we see the despair that he feels at least Moses moves on to the description of some of those things that he's afraid of it seems the description in verse 2 that we see he's exposed to danger he says for look lo the wicked bend their bow they make their arrow ready upon the string so you know that if you know anything about the bows and they've got the bow uh, they've got the arrow set up on the on the on the bow itself and they're pulling back the string so they're aiming so this is this is this is this is the action of 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 murder this is the action of violence that's been put forth uh, upon him he says look the wicked are bending their bow they're, they're aiming at me they're about to uh, to release the arrow they're about it's about to to come at me and to come at my own and they make ready the arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. So this is not even an open, open attack. That word privily there, we understand that they're doing it in secret. So they're doing it secretly, literally that word means in the dark. So in the dark, they're attacking me. Does it always mean therefore that this is a physical attack upon his life? Not necessarily not necessarily this could be some some hidden attack that's done against him that's that's against his character that's against his his name his reputation attacks are made therefore those arrows are not physical arrows but they're the arrows of lies they are the arrows of malice the arrows of slander and gossip uh, to pull him down and it has entered into his soul 
We touched upon this in the adult Bible class on the last Lord's Day. Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, and that's just not true. Often people will say things that hurt us deeply, that go as arrows deep into the heart and can wound us, and can wound us for years. And so we may understand this as as figurative language for there are people against him who are his enemies and maybe only he knows. And he knows it's this courtier and he knows that it's this part of his family and he knows it's that uh, famous household and he knows it's that group of rich merchants and they're out to get him. But he also calls them wicked. They're not just wicked because they're out to get him. It's because they are wicked because they have something against the godly. They have something against the godly king. And they work in secret, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart, of which he is one. And calling himself here the upright in heart is something that we see repeated a a, a few times in in this psalm. And essentially we can understand, and we will look at that in a little bit more detail. But essentially what he's trying to say is that they are aiming their arrows at those who have a clean conscience. It's not, it's not as if they're taking revenge for evil I've done against them. They are wicked and they're doing this against me and they're doing it in secret. Maybe nobody else knows about it. But it does hurt. But I'm going to put my trust in the Lord. In the Lord put I my trust. I put my trust in the Lord. And then the declaration then that he makes in verse 3, he says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this seems almost like a proverb just put in the middle of the psalm. At least that's how it came across to me in my, in my, in my reading. It just seemed to be, I expect to read that in the Proverbs. But it's not out of place by any means. Because there's undermining going on. And he's saying if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If they're, if, if they're being completely undermined, as it were, the carpet's being pulled out from underneath them, What can the righteous do? What is the right thing that the righteous can do in that situation? Go back to the beginning. In the Lord I put my trust. Because of course it's so so easy to then to fight fire with fire. It's so easy to say, well they're saying mean things about me, so I'm going to say mean things about them. No, in the Lord put I my trust. But he does come down to this. Point three, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we could say again, you know, which foundations are we talking about? I think I just added. Which foundations are we talking about? We could think of broader broader foundations than, 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 say, David's reputation. We could broaden it out and think David's throne, David's kingdom, where the Lord has put him. The Lord has anointed him to be the king, to be a righteous king, to be that man after God's own heart that he was when he was looking after the flocks of his father as a young man, as, as a boy even, and growing up into a young man. And, and, and all that time that he was a great example to the believers and is still declared by the Scriptures to be, to be a godly king except concerning the matter of Uriah the Hittite, etc., So it could be that. What about the general morality of the kingdom that he's a king over? The state of Israel. Which of course in his days was a united kingdom. 
the general morality, the general, what about religion, the true religion? Is that being undermined? No, we have to say that when we consider Absalom, we do think that both morality and religion and the kingdom were deeply undermined for the sake of this one man's rebellion. And I use the word man advisedly because he was like a spoiled brat. He was a boy, he was a child in his motivations, in his words, and in his morality. Or general equity, general righteousness and fairness in the land. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that question, as it were, is, is left open, but it is answered. What can the righteous do? Well, the answer is in the second part of this psalm. So the first part we've seen is King David's tests and trials. And the second is David's king's deliverance and comfort. David's king's deliverances and comfort. Because King David had a king. A king far higher than he was. And so the second part of this psalm, it shows us the other side of that coin then. We see the sufferings of the believer, but we also see the deliverances by God and those deliverances which can be in time and deliverances which are experienced in eternity. Those deliverances that are promised to the believer and are promised to us here. If Christ is your king, then Christ will deliver you. Christ will conquer you. He has conquered you and he will conquer his and your enemies. Which in some ways is summed up by the first verse of Psalm 110. Which I think we all know. Uh, If I say this, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It's interesting there. So David is saying that Jehovah said to my Lord. So we see the king has a king. The king has a king. And the thing is, King David has one king, but that one king we see two voices. We see the, the voice, uh, or not the voice, but we see the father pointed to and we see the mediator, the Lord pointed to as well. We're saying to David anyway, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yes, but that's not what he precisely says. Jehovah said to my Lord. So the father says to Jesus, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. But being found in Christ means it is also applied to us. Sit thou, rest, wait until thine enemies are made thy footstool. That's what we read in verses 4 to 7. We see firstly, when we open up verse 4 then, we see his sovereign knowledge. His sovereign knowledge in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Now Calvin says a couple of things about this psalm and about this particular verse he says this in what follows this second part of the psalm he says this the psalmist glories in the assurance of the favor of God he says being destitute of human aid he betakes himself to the providence of God it is a signal proof that means a remarkable uh, proof of faith 
as I've observed elsewhere, to take and to borrow, so to speak, light from heaven to guide us to the hope of salvation when we are surrounded in this world with darkness on every side. So the Lord is in his holy temple. What what is this then? What do we understand about his holy temple? Well, we understand this as being heaven, of course, because there was no temple in the time of David. There was a tabernacle, and this is not the word for tabernacle. So he's pointing to the heavenly temple, and how do we understand that? Just to confirm that, well, that's what he says in the second second part of that Hebrew parallelism we have in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So it's the heavenly throne. It's the heavenly temple of God. That's where the Lord is, and that's what we understand. It's because he's in heaven that we can trust in him. You can't see him in heaven. But we know by the witness of the scriptures and as the Holy Spirit witnesses to us the truth of the scriptures that we believe what it says. He is in heaven. And he's sitting on his throne in heaven. He's in his temple in heaven. And we believe it because we walk by faith and not by sight. Because the sight for spiritual things would fail us, but we walk by faith. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 7. So looking away from providence and looking unto judgment, looking unto the judge uh, in heaven who is above all things and sees all things as we will look at in a second. Because where, where there is darkness in the world where justice and equity and faithfulness and righteousness are sorely lacking in the world, David looks up to heaven where there is a bounteous supply of mercy and righteousness and faithfulness. And heaven, of course, is not merely described as the place of God's abode. It's it's speaking specifically as the place where God rules from, where he tries, where he, he judges, where he punishes, where he upholds, where he sends comfort. And once again, Calvin uh, spoke something of this, but I thought it was just too good not to quote. Uh, Calvin says, When, therefore, deceit, craftiness, treachery, cruelty, violence, and extortion reign in the world, in short, when all things are thrown into disorder and darkness by injustice and wickedness, let faith serve as a lamp to enable us to behold God's heavenly throne. And let that sight suffice to make us wait in patience for the restoration of things to a better state. I couldn't have said it better myself, which is why I quoted Calvin. Very true. Very true. And look, notice what is the theme, actually, not a theme, but a, 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 a repeated figure in these uh, remaining four verses is either directly or indirectly pointing to the all-seeing eye of Jehovah. We see that in a couple of places there. His eyes behold, his eyelids try. And we know that his eyelids try. We see that in verse 5, the Lord trieth the righteous. Well, how does he try them? Well, he's just been told. We've just been told his eyelids are trying them. And he, 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 he observes and knows what the wicked are doing. And then we come to the very end of the psalm in verse 7 saying his countenance doth behold the upright. So this is pointing to the fact that 
that Jehovah sees all things. You may have known the expressions, the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God. He knows all things. <coughs> the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. And I mentioned it before from the pulpit, but there's another word that's not really well known. is the omnividence. We know the vid from video. The omnividence. He sees all things. He sees all things. <coughs> and so that points to that very truth that God knows. He sees. He senses. He discerns. He judges all things at all places and at all times. That's what it's, it's all pointing to when we think of the omnividence of God. And just saying the omnividence of God points to his omniscience and to his omnipresence. And when we think of those things, which the Bible clearly teaches, they are really helpful to man to understand God, that God sees me at all times, that God knows all things. Before it's on my tongue, God knows what my words are. He he knew what my desires were before even I knew what they were. He knows all things. And so we have these ideas that God is everywhere, so so he's able to see all things. But God does see all things. He hears all things. He, He understands all things. But ultimately, it points to the fact that God has foreordained everything. Of course, he knows and sees. He sees all things because he knows all things because he's foreordained all things. And there's nothing that exists outside of God anyway. Nothing exists outside of God, so he's, he is therefore always omnipresent. He is everywhere because nothing can exist without him. But having foreordained all things, he, he, he knows what's going to happen. He knows how much... Uh, ability and free will and self-determination that he's given to each and every person at each and every time to make each and every decision as well as the decision but he has also given the self-responsibility so even though the lord foreordains everything he also foreordains the free will he foreordains everything so it does not make him the author of sin by any means but he is the author of creation which means that he is truly sovereign over absolutely everything. He's sovereign over everything. We come back to what we see in verse 4 when it says, His eyes behold, just coming to that word behold, that word behold is not the word to, to glance at something. It's not, the, it's not the, the idea he's seen something as opposed to heard it or, or smelt it. It's a, 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 the be word behold. And we might not get that. Um, from our understanding but the word hold will help us you hold your gaze upon something you behold something so it's not just a a, a quick glance but it's a, a, a gazing observation you're holding your gaze upon something and that's what the Lord does to each and every one of us he beholds us he beholds all things His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. So everybody, but we'll find out that's more especially for his own people when we come to verse 7. So it's a holding the gaze, a beholding, a deep searching. So the Lord can judge righteously. And it shows us that God is keenly involved in and aware of everything that happens in the creation. He knows everything. He's interested in everything to the smallest detail. Having given moral responsibility to mankind, as it says here. So his eyes behold, his his eyelids try. It's as if his eyelids are scales and balances, as it were, to try to to judge. And I'm not talking good deeds and bad deeds. Definitely not. But he's judging, as it were, right in front of his eyes. His eyelids 
are trying and weighing and discerning. Because he has given that moral, moral responsibility to all of mankind. And interestingly, uh, the expression, the children of men, is literally the children of Adam. And he examines them. He examines the, them all. He examines the righteous and the unrighteous. And so if we understand these things that the Lord is looking at his all time, of course that should be a great incentive to the people of God to realize that, you know, I can't be a hypocrite. I can't say one thing and then do something in private because the Lord is, is looking over me. And maybe for the, for the spiritually dead person and for the legalist, that might be a terrible thing. Oh, I can't do this. You know, God's going to be looking at me all the time. And in some ways, that's a, that's a sign of a guilty conscience. I remember when I was a, a child and I would be in my room and I'm thinking, a child of six or seven years old, you know, I would think of doing something or I would, I would, I would have taken something and be opening it up in secret that I shouldn't have done uh, or whatever I was doing and I, w- I would think my mum was watching me. I was convinced that my mum had cameras in the room. This is years before the technology was even available via Amazon. Um, but I was convinced, but that was, that was just a guilty conscience. Thinking that my mum was looking at me in some way, my mum being um, a replacement for the Lord. But this is the Lord that sees all things. And so, yes, for the guilty conscience, it's a good reminder. And it was good that when society knew that a lot more, that there is a God that sees all things, so that even the ungodly will be reminded, don't do it. Don't do it. Well, for us as the the people of God, yes, there should be a fear, uh, an awe-inspired fear, a fear, a love, a wonder, a humility, and a gratitude that God is so interested in me, not because I am wonderful by any means, but it's still very encouraging that God loves us, and God has taken us to be his children, and he has become our father in Jesus Christ, and he is interested, and he is looking out for us, And he knows what's happening. So we've seen his sovereign uh, knowledge. And very quickly then his sovereign oversight we see in verse 5. His sovereign oversight says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Here we see the trying of the righteous. And that word for try means to test. It means to test something. And the word literally is the idea of, of, of testing the quality of metals, is the, is the word that would be used in the Hebrew. Test metal, but I suppose by smelting them, by purifying them even. But what we understand is when the Lord does that to the righteous, when he does that to his people, uh, we could say the Lord trieth the saints. He trieth his saints. He, he, he tests them. He purifies them. And it's not always easy to deal with these things. But what we understand from the context here is that's an act of love. That's an act of love. The Lord trieth the righteous. And then the obverse of that coin is, but the wicked and the him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. So the Lord tries us. He tests us. He smelts us. He purifies us because that's the act of a loving father. A loving God. Why? To remove that wickedness that he hates in others. He wants us to be his children, to be devoid of that wickedness that he hates. And it says his soul hateth. Saying to to God's very core, and again it's human language, 
because God is an infinite and eternal spirit, creating spirit, not a created spirit. And, and he hates these things to the very core, and so he does not want them in his children. Why does he not want them in his children? Because his children are to be made into the image of his son. He wants them to be holy as he is holy. Because that's good for us. Because it delights him. And because it means that his, his hand of correction does not have to lay heavy upon his children. There's no father, normal father, who delights in taking the rod to their child or giving them the right hand of displeasure. There's no father that delights in and of itself. But the, the father knows that it is necessary at times, as does the Lord. And so it is necessary for that purification. But he does it because he loves them and because he loves righteousness, which is what we see in verse 7. But he hates the wicked, as he also calls them the violent ones. Him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Does that just mean those who like to go and drink and fight on the streets? Well, if we didn't include them, but it, it talks about all those that are violent. They are rebels against him. They are liars. They are murderers, but they do violence against truth. In so many different ways we can understand what violence is. We could even say this, they do violence to their own soul. Because they will not repent of their sin and they will take themselves soul and body into hell. The lake of fire. And then the comparison is then made of the, of the trials of life. Then we consider this, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. And again, that helps us understand so the trials in life that are given to the believer are for the believer's good, but the trials that are given to the unbeliever, an expression of hate, but for his bad. Thirdly, his sovereign judgment in verse 6, upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. And that's really more detail of the hatred that holy Jehovah has for the wicked and how he will express it. And we may see this language to be figurative, even in this life, that that, that will come, come upon them, that they will suffer these things, either physically or emotionally or mentally or financially in some way, that everything will fall apart, everything will burn around them, as it were. And we, we see that in, in, in places where great famous political figures or figures of the entertainment industry, that everything just falls apart and their history of wickedness is exposed in the newspapers and everything falls apart. So, figurative language to a certain degree in this life, but literal language for the life hereafter. Snares, fire, brimstone, horrible tempest, raining upon them, the, the, the vengeance of God. Which means if we understand that God is in his holy temple in verse 4 and that he is trying, he is observing, he is discerning, he is judging. And if we, if we know that his temple, his throne, is an unmovable throne, then we also understand that the judgment upon the wicked that's promised and declared in verse 6 is also unmovable. 
It is certain, in other words. Unless we come to the Lord in repentance and faith. And that means, repentance of course means repenting of wickedness, repenting of loving violence, repenting of hating God's people, repenting of all those things that are between you and God. Which brings us finally to verse 7 and his sovereign love. His sovereign love. And in some ways this, this uh, verse 7 answers uh, the question of why to verse six and s- verses 5 and 6. So the Lord trieth the righteous, upon the wicked he shall rain the snares. Well, we say this is why God does it because it's in God's character. God is a, has a holy character and he hates that which is unholy. And it's right that he hates it. He would not be holy and righteous if he didn't hate that which is unholy and unrighteous. You can't say that God is not a liar. Let let God be true and every man a liar. If God allowed a lie, if God was pleased with a lie, he would not be righteous. But he is righteous and therefore he hates lies. He hates everything that's corrupt and untrue. He hates false religion. He hates false gospels. He hates anything that is not good. He loves righteousness. He loves the righteous. He loves those that are made righteous by his son. He loves his son. He is a God of love, which means he hates sin and wickedness. And he beholds them. See, we have that word again. His countenance doth behold. He holds his gaze upon the righteous, and it is a gaze of love. Yes, there can be a disapproving disapproving father, but it's not a disapproving father who, who has character problems, who has drink problems, who has perfectionistic problems. It, it's the father that seeks the best for his child. And he beholds, he beholds you, he beholds me. He looks upon us and he looks upon us in love because we're found in Jesus Christ. And it is a countenance of blessing. Here we see this countenance the Lord beholds with his full face. It's not just his eyes observing the wicked but he beholds the, the righteous, the upright. Reminds me of what we read of in the ironic blessing, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So we have the glorious, holy, uh, blessed countenance of God, not just observing you, but beaming upon you shining down upon you, ready to hear your every petition, always ready to give deliverance and comfort in his time and in his way. But it is a countenance to behold the upright. And it's very different that the Lord will hide his face from the ungodly. His eyes are upon them, and yet he doesn't bring that, 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 that fatherly countenance to shine upon them with blessing. And is also indicative of what we read in the Beatitudes. And we close with this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One day we will see, by God's grace, that, that, that beaming countenance of God beholding us. And we will behold him. And we will look back. And we, when we look back at the Lord, we will not feel guilty. We won't feel down. We won't feel, oh, the Lord's looking at me. Because all tears 
and all guilt and all condemnation have been absolutely removed, those things will be to us as a foreign language. We won't know them, we won't experience them, we may understand them in here, but it's not something that would hurt our conscience. And we would look upon his face and he will look upon us and that will be an eternal truth. In the Lord put I my trust. Amen. Uh, let us just close this in prayer before we complete singing Psalm 11. Lord, thou knowest how often we are consumed by the slings and arrows of the wicked. And that we're consumed by the meanness of their face and their intention. And the things that they say to us can wound us deeply. In some ways, Lord, it's a very human reaction. But human is often sinful. And so we end up looking at the person and the problem and we're no longer looking at the Redeemer. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou art long-suffering to usward in that thou wilt say it again and again in the Scriptures to turn away from the problem, turn our eyes away from beholding the problem and behold the sweet countenance of God in Christ. Remind us again, Lord, and again. But we pray, Lord, would thou forgive the sinful memory that we have and cause us to think on these things. Help us, Lord, deliver us from our difficulties, from those that would shoot the arrows at us privily. Deliver us, O God, and help us to look unto thee. Let not those arrows distract us from looking unto thee, for that can be the case also. Let us look unto thee. Let us behold and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, thou knowest our difficulties that we have. Thou knowest those who would have those arrows ready to shoot. And Lord, thou knowest the many arrows that have been shot and have struck home. So Lord, we pray for deliverance, for help. Deliver us from those that hate us and hate thee and bring glory to thy name. We thank thee that thou art a God that loveth righteousness. And thy love for thy people is a righteous love because Jesus has taken away all of our unrighteousness. Hallelujah and praise be to thy name. Amen.